From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A group of senators want the Office of Personnel Management to make sure the government doesn't punish federal employees for taking health precautions during the coronavirus outbreak. The senators urge OPM Director Dale Cabanis to direct agencies to expand telework policies, tell employees and contractors not to work if they're sick, and work with health insurance companies to make sure employees can afford care if they do contract the virus. NextGov reports the federal government's the largest employer in the country. The Government Accountability Office says the Interior Department needs to do more to justify moving Bureau of Land Management Headquarters employees out west. The office says employees didn't have many chances to give feedback. Federal News Network reports 252 Bureau of Land Management positions are supposed to make the move to Colorado or other western states. The Department of Housing and Urban Development will move its home tracking system to the cloud. HUD has a request for information on the street for a web-based asset management system that will track homes for sale, process transactions, and account for HUD homes. Federal Times reports HUD hopes to issue the contract by 2021. The Defense Digital Service will open its doors to a new office in Mountain View, California. DDS plans to team up with the Defense Innovation Unit's Rogue Squadron team to work on small unmanned aircraft systems and counter UAS technology. Katie Olson's Deputy Director of the Defense Digital Service. Katie, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the impetus behind opening this campus out west? Sure. So for us, the primary motivation is to address the need for counter UAS um, support within the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. um, the Army will be the executive agent for uh, for counter UAS going forward. Um, but our role, as in as in all things uh, with DDS, is to shore up the the technology that we have available to the department. What's behind the partnership with DIU and DDS? Sure. Is this the first time that you have worked together directly on a project? It's, like it's this? not. We've actually we've had a, a partnership for you know for a number of years specifically around counter UAS mm -hmm. missions. Um, so the, the reason that we want to come together is that uh, Rogue Squadron, the counter UAS unit at DIU, has a long history of, um, of supporting these missions. Mm -hmm. um, so for a number of years, since about 2016, 2017 or so, um, Rogue Squadron has been supporting the department with a number of software and hardware solutions um, surrounding the counter UAS and, and small UAS missions. Mm -hmm. um, over the years, we've, we've built a number of projects together, um, looking at how we can better help um, protection within the NCR, um, but with also, um, also supporting some of our overseas operations with regard to counter U.S. missions. So we felt, um, we felt it was um, advantageous to bring the teams together and sort of put together you know, the, the talent and the, the sort of history and the, the systems that, that Rogue Squadron has already built mm -hmm. um, together with the, the team that DDS has in place of some of the best technologists in the country. Is that collaboration the reason that Mountain View is a good location for this or are there other advantages you gain mm -hmm. by being there rather than here or in some other location? It's, it's a great question. It, you know, the the impetus for for coming together, you know, was that um, DIU was already at, the Rogue Squadron unit was already at, at DIU, mm -hmm. um, but we're we're really interested in seeing if having a space in Mountain View allows us to to attract some of the West Coast talent that uh, we believe would be interested in, in serving their country, mm -hmm. just as uh, the rest of the DDS team does. So, you know, by by having a, a footprint out there, we are hoping to attract some of the the West Coast talent, you know, some of the best designers, engineers. 
designers, product managers um, that the, the country has to offer. So uh, we're going to experiment with it and see if, if people are interested in joining the team, knowing that they don't necessarily have to relocate to Washington, um, but there's, a, there's an office space for them based in the Valley. Is there an element of this also of seeing mm -hmm. how this can work and whether this is something that can scale there, or that this mm -hmm. might just be the beginning of more work in that area? Absolutely, and I, I think it's the it could be the beginning of scaling both the counter UAS mission mm -hmm. and and sort of seeing you know what the what the department needs and if that's something we can continue to fulfill by sort of scaling the operations there. But then to your point, uh, I, I think scaling the number of people that we have in that office as well. Mm -hmm. um, so again, sort of reach into you know the the Seattle tech scene, Portland tech scene, um, Mountain View tech scene, and seeing if by giving um, giving some of the best technologists an alternate location if they'd be interested in, in helping to serve the mission without necessarily having to you know to relocate to a very different lifestyle. In, mm -hmm. in DC. How will you monitor this collaboration mm -hmm. to see that you're getting the results from it that you want, Katie? That's a, it's a great question. Uh, so we'll look at it in a couple different ways. Um, you know, what we we had DDS prioritize force protection. So how how. Um, you know, how are we taking care of our troops? Mm -hmm. um, and we also prioritize secure systems. So thinking about how we're protecting our physical and digital assets mm -hmm. um, of the department. And so I think we'll, we'll look at the success of this mission in both those, um, both those dimensions. You know, have we been able to, you know, uh, you know, protect our troops um, both here and abroad, um, and likewise, you know, are we securing our systems? You know, part of the, the counter U.S. mission um, is to detect and defeat you know, unmanned drones, essentially, that um, that our adversaries might be deploying against us. Mm -hmm. um, but the other mission is is to is a readiness mission, is to prepare you know our facilities here and abroad, um, for, you know, f for those uh, for those threats well in advance. So we'll we'll measure our impact by sort of our ability to keep you know physical and digital assets secure as well as, as keeping our troops safe. So you said DDS prioritizes force protection and security in this mm -hmm. particular case. How do you decide mm -hmm. in this or any other collaboration? Sure what's DIU's purvey and mm -hmm. what's DDS's purvey given mm -hmm. especially something like UAS is so technology heavy right. so digitally heavy right so so in this case and um, the the rogue squadron unit is formally spinning out of DIU mm -hmm. um, so DIU will continue um, with their mission which is is really to to find and scale commercial technology and make it available for the department mm -hmm. um, so in this case you know the rogue squadron team formally folds under DDS um, so it's sort of one one decision you know sort of one team um, that will work together to, okay. to prioritize the work. What does the collaboration with industry look like in a situation like this? It's a, it's a great question. Uh, you know, part of the technology that um, that Rogue Squadron has built to date, um, that the counter U.S. team has built to date, um, is some of the you know some of the sensing devices. Thinking about like how we can we can detect um, small U.A.S. for example. And I don't think that the department necessarily needs to own that capability. Mm -hmm. There are other private sector. Um, Solutions on the market, and I think you know part of our job should be to to make sure that if, if the department moves forward with procuring additional solutions, you know we're we're informing and advising what those solutions need to do, what they need to perform, um, and the types of threats that we're that we're anticipating. And um, so I think the collaboration uh, the collaboration with the private sector will hopefully be informed by you know what we're seeing is sort of building on our own, and then inviting the private sector to you know to help support that so we can continue to scale the mission. Katie Olson, thanks very much for coming on. Great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, the aerospace industry and government contracting. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the top trends in contracting you need to follow. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. Welcome back. The Space Force will incorporate 5G technology heavily into its mission. The Air Force head of acquisition, Will Roper, says, quote, 5G is as important to the future of the Space Force as it is to the Air Force. Here to talk about some of the other top trends in government contracting in the future, John Luddy, Vice President for National Security Policy at the Aerospace Industries Association. John, thanks for coming on. What are some of the top things that your members are telling you are their priorities or what they're hearing from the people they're working with in DOD are the priorities of the department? Sure, Francis. Well, thanks for having me on. You know, you mentioned the Space Force. That's obviously an issue of great concern to our industry and interest. Mm -hmm. You know, we're very pleased by the fact that uh, the, the embodiment of the Space Force really represents the energy that we think is important for that mission area. Uh, our nation's economy depends on space. Our warfighters depend on space, and we think that our industry is in a position to really help move that along. So we've worked very closely with DOD as they begin to implement the Space Force. We're, we're drawing uh, more and more connections with our companies and the folks who are doing that planning. Mm -hmm. So that's one example, I think, where we have a lot to offer, a lot to inform the direction of the space, of, of national security space. Mm -hmm. A couple of other areas that we're watching very closely, and. This this one in particular is critical to the to the innovation drive that the DoD is 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 taking right now, and that's the matter of intellectual property. Mm -hmm. DoD's come out with an intellectual property policy that we think is pretty balanced. It does a good job of balancing industry interests and the value of intellectual property across our economy to folks that we want to participate in the industrial base, while at the same time recognizing that DoD has concerns about IP access to IP in terms of sustainment and so forth. So the DoD's come out with a with a with a policy and intellectual property. We'll now watch for implementation, but we think in general it's struck a pretty good balance. Uh, another area that we watch very closely is cybersecurity. That's been a big uh, area of focus for a couple of years now. There again, I think the department's got it pretty, pretty much right in terms of uh, a flexible and adaptive approach to cybersecurity. We never had an issue in our industry at the top levels. Mm -hmm. I mean, our, our big companies, Set the, set the standard for cybersecurity. The challenge was, as you move through the supply chain, how do you in, in, encourage and, and, and uh, uh, create cybersecurity at those levels? Uh, we have been successful, I think, in working with DOD to develop the dialogue we need to do that, uh, to develop ongoing uh, practices and uh, the requirements of the cybersecurity maturity model certification that adapt to the, 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 the kinds of companies that we're working with and the kinds of technologies that they're working on. So we think that's been a good good story as well. The two threads I want to pull on there are the supply chain and cybersecurity more broadly. What's your sense of, and the IP issue as well if we have time, um, what's your sense of the way that the department has approached overall supply chain issues, not limited to cybersecurity, but that seems to be the primary one that they're focused on right now? It's interesting you ask that because really in the last couple of years there's, there, there are two major efforts that, uh, in, policy efforts that the department has uh, taken up that, that, that really drive the work that we do in industry. One is of course the national defense strategy mm -hmm. and we're working very hard to support the Department of Defense in executing that strategy with capabilities and technology and flexibility. The other is uh, the assessment that was done early on in the administration of the industrial base. Uh, that was a critical effort, and we did a lot to support that by bringing in folks from our companies to talk to DOD as they work through different areas, uh, mission areas, looking at the challenges of the supply chain. Uh, 
it's led to some really good policies, I think, in terms of focusing on areas of, 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 of potential vulnerability, mm -hmm. uh, trying to encourage resilience in the supply chain, identifying where there are single or, or maybe one or two points of failure where, where we could lose critical capabilities. That, that's been a really important effort on the part of DOD. Uh, we think they've, they've done a very good job of surveying the landscape of, of the industrial base. You know, it's, it's one thing to understand how the core traditional defense industry operates, and it operates really well, and our companies do a great job. It's another thing to, to really, when you peel back the onion, to understand that, you know, where, is our, where are our sources of supply? Are they international or are they domestic? You know, mm -hmm. do, we have a, do we have a sustained and, and reliable source of supply for different kinds of capabilities and so forth? You know, what are the challenges in our workforce? We're in a war for talent with uh, uh, industry of all kinds in this country. Uh, it's, a, it's a real challenge to get highly capable, qualified, motivated folks to work uh, in, in our industry. Uh, we're doing very well at it. We have a lot to offer but we have to, to uh, look hard at that and work hard on that to make sure that, that, to that, that we can do that. There's a ton more I'd like to cover on supply chain. We have less than a minute left, so okay. I want to ask you about IP. Sure. What have been the traditional sticking points with IP, and why do you believe that the policy that the Pentagon's put out is balanced well for the companies that you represent? I think that the big sticking point with IP has been, and not to use this in a pejorative sense, but ignorance. Not being aware early on in a program what the intellectual property requirements are going to be as mm -hmm. the program goes on. So the tendency there to be conservative is to, is to ask, ask for and control as much IP on the part of the government as possible. Uh, that can be a real deterrent to companies who, for whom their intellectual property is, is, their, is their bread and butter. Mm -hmm. So that's been the real sticking point. I think the department's done a good job now of trying to find balance and ask that as programs are developed, as contracts are developed, that we think about IP on the front end, mm -hmm. ask for what we need, require what we need, and try to stay flexible otherwise. That's been a, I think that's been a, a real step in the right direction. John, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you Pleasure. here. Pleasure. Pleasure. Up next, federal agencies and contractors and the coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, preparing for an outbreak for contractors. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Securities and Exchange Commission is the first major federal agency to tell employees to stay home and telework instead of going into the office and risking exposure to coronavirus. The, we're tracking the outbreak and what it means for federal employees and contractors. For more on how contractors can prepare for interruptions, Government Matters' Marjorie Sensor is here with Eric Crucius, a partner at Holland and Knight. I mean, I think the, the most dramatic impact that contractors could potentially see is similar to what we saw with the government shutdown, where work sites closed down, uh, government customers are unavailable for contractors to work with them if there's some kind of quarantine situation. I'm not saying there will be, but if there is, that's where we could see kind of the most disruption. It's not that the contracts don't have funding, it's that the contractors can't perform because they can't go to a work site, because so many contracts are dependent on a contractor being able to access a government work site and access those government customers. You know, in a shutdown, there's there's often more warning. It seems like contractors may not always have warning if a if a site shuts down, potentially in a different area of the country. What can contractors be doing now to prepare for that? I think 
what contractors should be doing now is something that contractors should probably do on a regular basis anyway, and that's take stock of the contracts you have, where performance is, um, understand what your rights are if performance has to stop, but just kind of get a great inventory, a detailed inventory of your contracts and whether the government is necessary to continue performing them. Because uh, one thing that contractors always struggle with, of course, is funding. Um, and will contractor be able to get paid if that contract temporarily stops? And like you said, there's not going to be a lot of warning probably if a contract cannot be performed. So kind of getting in touch with the contracting officer or contracting agency in advance and just having that discussion with them to see perhaps maybe there's some, some some things that are parts of the contract that can be performed off-site. So maybe put those off and don't perform them right now to save them if there is a temporary quarantine situation. The sort of hints that what we often hear during shutdown prep is communicate both with, both with your customer and with your employees. Do you think that communication is starting to happen at all or is it still a little early for that? I mean, I think anecdotally that communication is starting a little bit. It's just so much in the news um, and whether you agree, disagree, that it's the news is overblown it's it's out there so i think contractors are starting to take those steps in talking with the government customer i don't think the government customers have a lot of information right now because they don't really know exactly what's going to happen um as none of us really do but i think having those conversations like they are starting to is really helpful could there be other sort of indirect effects i wonder if um you know restricted travel might might start to affect contractors in some way yes i mean obviously um the the agencies put on uh, have requirements, I should say, where contractors sometimes have to travel to different work sites around the country. I've seen it firsthand. That may impact whether a contractor can perform. There may be a certain CLIN contract line item number for that kind of travel and for for the uh, that part of the contract. They may not be able to perform that, and so will the contractor be able to get paid for that? That's obviously something that would be in a contractor pipeline expecting that to happen. So that's an impact. The travel industry is suffering a little bit, so contractors who provide travel services um, will obviously suffer a little bit as well. What about uh, supply chain? You know, I wonder about contractors who maybe are trying to get supplies from places that aren't aren't getting what they need or are otherwise facing delays. Yes, um, I think that's a really important issue that contractors are having right now because um, you know we get supplies from around the world. Contractors pull supplies from around the world, and it's not really clear whether that those supply chains are going to be further interrupted or not. Each contract, or many contracts, have uh, the equivalent of what's a force majeure clause. Um, all commercial contracts have a have a clause uh, in it um, that talks about what happens if there is an inability to perform because of um, a spread of a pandemic virus or something like that. Every clause is slightly different. Every situation is slightly different, so I'm not going to opine on whether it's, it's an effective clause or not in this situation, but that's something that contractors should look at um, because if their supply chain is interrupted, they may need an excuse to tell the government why it's being interrupted because otherwise the government can terminate for default. Um, the government could still terminate for convenience a lot of times if that force majeure clause is used, but the c contractor has a lot more rights in that situation. Sure. I know another thing you're, you're looking at is the role of the Defense Production Act. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So for the uninitiated, I guess the Defense Production Act allows the government to step in and say, we're the first customer in line. I know you're making X product for the masses or for other companies, um, but we're first now. So the government can assign a rating to a contract. Uh, DX is the highest rating that, it, that they can assign, and that gives the government top priority for anything. So the government can step into a manufacturing plant and say, these, whatever of this, is for us, and we come first. And the contractor then has to kind of balance that with the obligations they've made to all their 
other supplier or all the folks that they're going to sell to as well, um, because that, that could be very disruptive for a contractor. I'm not saying that that's a wrong move by the government. I'm just saying that the contractor has to deal with a lot of competing priorities that they might not have necessarily been expecting. Do you think most contractors know about that that policy and are, are familiar with how to do that? It seems like it's not invoked frequently. True. Um, I think the more larger, more sophisticated contractors probably are. But I think a lot of contractors who are medium-sized, small contractors would be surprised to see such a rating in their contract. It's usually on the first page of your contract, there's a rating assigned to it, DX, DO, or unrated. And um, I, would, I would urge contractors, especially ones that are providing supplies to the government, to look at that um, rating and see if it's there, because th they may be uh, next in line uh, of the government asking them to provide to the government first. And with just about 30 seconds to go, um, anything else you're watching on this, this potential pandemic? Are you, anything, advice you'd give to contractors right now? I mean, I think just like with everything else, communication is key. Communicating, like you said, to your employees, communicating with the government, being aware that this is a fluid situation. Um, some, nothing may come of it at all, but there, it could be entirely disruptive. And actually looking at the cash reserves that contractors have because um, depending on the type of contract a contractor has, they may not be able to get paid for the time that they're not working. Um, fixed price, you're delivering a product, you deliver that product anyway, you deliver that service anyway, even with fewer man hours or fewer people, that's that you, you may still not suffer any financial harm, but I think contractors um, could have a disruption in their cash flow. Sure. Thanks for being here, Eric. Thank you. Thanks, Marjorie. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. We're here weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 for you to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.